Hi everyone, it's The Boyfriends here. Hello. On the day that this episode was recorded, it was sort of around the beginning of December, but on the day that it comes out, it's going to be Boxing Day. It will be Boxing Day, yeah. So we just want to say Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, guys. We are recording this on the 20th of December, meaning that Boris Johnson's new announcement for a Tier 4 for the southeast of England and London has been announced and is officially in effect. <laughs> if you are affected by the Tier 4 announcement, if you're in these areas, then hopefully you're not alone. Call your loved ones and have a a good safe Christmas. Yes, remember that Christmas is what you make it and this does not mean that Christmas is cancelled. You can still have a fantastic day, Skype, Zoom, FaceTime, whatever works for you, but just make sure you enjoy it in the best way that you can. Mm, so stay safe. And have a great Christmas guys. Enjoy the episode. I'm Billy Ray. And I'm Joel. And you're listening to Tales from Wisteria Lane. The podcast where we give a fair view of all things Desperate Housewives. Hi guys, and welcome back to Tales from Wisteria Lane. I'm barely here, Joel. I'm somewhat here with you, right? And today we will be discussing Season 2, Episode 3, You'll Never Get Away From Me. Yeah, we will. So uh, I'll be doing the overview, and B will be doing the trivia. So have you got anything to start us off? Yes. Joel's not feeling very well today. I'm not feeling very well today. I've actually, in actual fact, I've called in sick from work today, but... B goes back to work in a couple of days, and I'm back at work full-time anyway, so I thought today's really the best chance we've got to record, so... Yeah. So, um, anyway, let's get started with the trivia. Let's crack on. So, this episode was written by Tom Spazzali and Ellie Herman, and directed by Arlene Sanford. I don't know her. The episode title, You'll Never Get Away From Me, comes from the Julie Stein song with lyrics by Stephen Sodheim, sung by Mama Rose and Herbie in the musical Gypsy. Okay, it's a gypsy song. Which is one I think I've actually heard of this time. I've, I mean, I've, I've heard of gypsy, I've never seen it. Oh yeah, I think I've heard it in passing. But I heard great things from the v- revival they did with Imelda Staunton in London a few, a few years ago. So the German title for this episode was Showtime. The Italian title, which I'm not going to try and pronounce, was, well, it translates to You'll Never Leave Me. Okay. The Hungarian title is You'll Never Get Away From Me, as was the Polish title. Okay, so Polish and Hungarian were the same. Other than that, I do have a few more bits of research that I've done for this particular episode, but I'm going to save it until it's relevant. Oh, okay. We don't normally do that. Um, Okay, so let's get started then. So, quick previously, Gabby tells John to basically do one. Edie and Carl move in together. Phyllis tells Rex's insurance company that Brie apparently has a boyfriend because she saw her hug another man. And Lynette starts her new job with a boss, who I'm just going to say is pretty much exactly like a real-world boss, but the show does make it seem like she's a massive villain. She's a little bit... She's wound um, a little bit tighter than most, but she's not far off just being a real world boss. Yeah, she's not terrible, but she can be a bit rude. Yes. Yeah. She's more. She's not like your manager, but she's probably like your area manager or your regional manager. Yeah. The people that are under far too much stress to deal with the little people. Yeah. And the Apple Whites have a secret prisoner. And that's pretty much our previously. So we start the episode with a little Brie scene and Brie is taking Phyllis to the graveyard to go and visit Rex or Cemetery, whichever one it is. Phyllis can't seem to remember where Rex has been laid to rest, and considering that she's so distraught, by the way, of having lost her eldest child, can't seem to remember where he's actually been laid to rest. Apparently, Phyllis's forgetfulness is not an uncommon theme, and she's been sort of pissing Brie off with it by ruining her clothes, stabbing her with pins, or potentially killing her with floor wax in the past. (laughs) Brie tries to hint to Phyllis to go away, pretty much, and go home, despite her reassuring Phyllis that there was no agenda behind the question, which is lies. The question being, so have you given any thought to when you're ending your visit? (laughs) That's the question. But someone has dug up Rex's grave and removed the body. 
Phyllis takes this time to tell Bree that an insurance investigator came to visit while she was out and asked all sorts of questions, believing that Rex was in fact murdered. Phyllis clearly must have just forgotten to tell her. Yeah, and she's also getting a lot of pleasure from telling Bree this. Total pleasure. Let's take out the fact that this is also Phyllis's son that has been dug up. She seems to be so happy that it's happened. Yeah, so Phyllis is frankly just a terrible person. Phyllis is shady. She is shady boots. Is she trying to kill Brie? I mean, <laughs> when they go through this montage of forgetfulness, she has her falling over onto floor wax. Yeah. And like stabbing her with pins. Her and, is she trying to kill her? I mean, it was all just a little bit of fun until the floor wax thing. Yeah, I mean, like, it's easy to forget that there might be a pin or two in a dress when you were, like, taking it in or something. Or, you know, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you that I just painted that chair, whatever. But the floor wax thing's a pretty big thing. Yeah. Like, do you, have you never heard of a wet floor sign, Phyllis? You could have killed her. You could have killed her. <laughs> They're easy to buy on Amazon. So that was the very opening of the scene, which showcases us a little bit more of Phyllis. Yep. And her shady side. I mean, we've seen plenty of Phyllis's shady side by this point, but this is like some personal vendetta shade right here. This isn't like Phyllis trying to take all the attention. Yeah, this is Game of Thrones shade. Yes, yeah. So we move to the opening and all the young girls, and by young girls I mean like the really young children of Wisteria Lane are having their own cute little tea party and sort of imagining what it will be like to be like a fully grown housewife and they get to gossip with their friends. We then move to Gabby who's having her own fantasy and staring out the window at John and imagining them going at it before she snaps out of it and realises her gardener sure ain't John. (laughs) Yeah. No offence to the new gardener. The most elaborate tangent to start us off with after the title <laughs> sequence. Right? She leaves to go to the store, and I use air quotes with that, when in fact she secretly goes to watch John gardening at somebody else's place. Quite unsubtly, I might like to add. She's literally just pretty much directly across the road in the car. <laughs> a car that, which doesn't even have a roof. Right, it's like an open top car. So she can't even like, hide inside it with tinted windows. She's just there. Not very conspicuous. <laughs> Did you also notice that her top matched her purse? Did it? Both gold. I did not notice that. Oh, well. Oh my god, what a shock. See, see, I'm training him well. He's even noticing that stuff. Lock in, Paris first. Paris first. So, Susan is pacing crazily on the street as Carl is late dropping Julie off from Edie's. And finally, she decides to storm over there, telling Mike, who she bumps into on the way, that it's court ordered and she can actually have Carl arrested if she wants to. But 15 minutes late is too late for her liking. Yeah, Susan is giving me major, mean, divorced mum vibes. Totally right now. She's just jealous. That's all it is. I get that he's only meant to have her till six, but they're only around the corner. Not even around the corner. Literally just at the end of the street. So, it's not even, there's not even a corner there to round. Like, yeah, why does he have to drop her off so specifically at six? If it's that big a deal, go get her. So she lets her mind go mental with all the what-ifs about what they could be doing, you know, porn, drugs, all that sort of stuff. Before they get to the door, I can hear Julie singing a hymn. They sneakily look through the window, and by they I mean Susan and Mike, sneakily look through the window to see Edie playing guitar, Julie singing, and Carl awkwardly videotaping this beautiful, wholesome moment. (laughs) Carl's being a proper dad with the video camera right there. Yeah, 100%. Like, a proper camcorder as well. It's not even like his phone that he's videoing on. This was like 2005? I think it was 2005 that this came out, so actually... Was there video phones in 2005? No, I don't think so. I don't think there were video phones in 2005. Either that or they were at the very, very early stages. She's so worried that things... Well, she claims that she's worried they're doing stuff, but we all know that she's just... She's just got a big big case of FOMO. She does. She just doesn't want, you know, Julie hanging around with Edie. Mm. That's all it is. Lynette comes home with school supplies for Parker, who'll be starting his first day of kindergarten soon, and she pulls out a really cool backpack, which impresses Parker. However, Parker isn't impressed that Lynette will not be taking him to school on his first day as she has to work, and instead it will be the dad. Yeah. The dad. Tom. (laughs) Yeah. 
It'll be Tom. It'll be Tom. The other, the other child. Mm-hmm. Lynette's oldest. Lynette's eldest child. Lynette tries to get Parker to understand that it is her boss's fault, and if she doesn't go to work, they'll all starve to death. But Parker still isn't convinced, shoves the backpack back to his mum and sulks, and this inevitably guilt trips Lynette into at least saying she'll talk to her boss, and Tom calls Lynette out for falling for his manipulation. I get it though, because his grumpy face is so cute. He's such a good little actor, that kid. He's got so much talent. He's so cute, little Parker. He, but, like, I mean, it's, why do you have to have your mum? I guess he's a mummy's boy, and that's what he's coming across. Well, because as, he's like, always had his mum. He's always had his mum. That's true, and I guess to a certain extent, as he is sort of the youngest boy, all the other boys will have had the mum take them to school. Parker will be like the first of the children that doesn't get Lynette to take him to school with them. Oh yeah. So Bree is at the police office discussing the removal of the body, and apparently there were some anomalies with the doctor's report, but he isn't at liberty to discuss it any further with Bree. This leads Bree to believe that she is a suspect. Oh yeah, and this detective is so cold towards her. It's completely cold towards her. Unnecessarily cold. He's given like... Inherently cold. Proper ice queen fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> the detective doesn't seem convinced, obviously, as we've just said, when um, Bree tells him that she was not ca- capable of hurting Rex, but soon realises that he obviously spoke to Phyllis, who is her mother-in-law. So Bree eventually makes a statement, confirming that Rex died of a heart attack and that she loved him, and that his mother did a lousy job before storming out. Yeah, when she comes to that conclusion, she's probably like, oh, did you talk to Phyllis? Right, well, she's my mother-in-law, of course she said horrible things about me. Well, that is very much, I think we said it in the previous episode as well, actually. You know, it's very much an American TV thing to really overemphasize the mother-in-law hating you. It's a whole subgenre in film. It really is. It's like a big old trope. Is that the right word? Did I use the right word? Yeah, like uh, a monster-in-law and stuff like that. Yeah, isn't that the one with um, J-Lo in? Yeah. Yeah. And Jane Jane Fonda. Uh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, we come back to Bree's house where Phyllis comes lumbering down the stairs to make coffee in the morning and Bree takes this opportunity to sneak upstairs, pack Phyllis's things and kick her out of the house and the taxi takes her away. would like to point out in the exact same way that she came into the show with her head out of the back of the taxi window screaming at Bree. <laughs> yeah, she leaves the way she entered. It's a, it's a full cycle. <laughs> a full circle moment for her. Phyllis walking down the stairs in the morning before she's had her coffee, looking like, well, the bridge troll that's suddenly become domesticated, right. is such a mood. It's a complete mood. There are, as Mary Alice says at that scene, there are two types of people in the world. The people that are useless before their morning coffee and the people that can just, you know, do whatever the hell they want before their morning coffee and they're completely awake. I'm the second category, but I pretend I'm the first. Like, I'm fully capable and able, but I'll be like, oh, I haven't had my coffee yet. I don't know, maybe it sounds cool. I'm just really unhealthy. I'll wake up, I'll have a couple of gulps of coke, I'll brush my teeth and I won't even eat anything until about 11am. That's when I will eat something at work. Because I wake up so late in the morning that I won't give myself time because I much I would much rather have that little bit of extra sleep than a bowl of cereal or whatever. So, <laughs> Yeah, we're very able before our coffee. <laughs> we are very able before our coffee. <laughs> Which is ironic because I'm not very able right now. Lucky us. Gabby rocks up to the jail for her and Carlos's anniversary, but it turns out that Carlos forgot all about it. He doesn't seem to think it's a big deal seeing as she cheated, but Gabby accuses him of clearly wanting to ruin this very special day. <laughs> well, well, that wasn't really her words, but I paraphrased. Carlos calls her out for not feeling guilt, despite the fact that I'm going to call Carlos out here because Gabby failed to do that. He doesn't really seem to feel guilty for messing with her birth control. 
Yeah, when's he ever showed guilt for that? Exactly, when's he ever apologised for that? He hasn't. So the fact that he can sit there and claim, oh, well, you never showed any guilt for cheating on me, that's true. Gabby hasn't really shown any guilt or really apologised properly for it, but neither's he, so neither of you get the upper hand in this argument. She's given a half-assed apology, at least. <laughs> she has. True. But, but she's also got him beaten up in prison, so... <laughs> yeah. And moving on to that, Carlos tells Gabby that she never apologised without following it up with a lame excuse, but Gabby tells Carlo that John loved her like no man ever has, just for her, not as a prize, not as a possession, but just for her. And Carlos finds this pretty laughable, as John is still a man. Oh yeah, he um he's he's right through that bull crap, right? I th- I love when she says that you're a colleague determined to ruin this special day for us. That's like one of my favorite lines of the episode. <laughs> just the way she delivers it is just we should, so funny. We should play a clip. We should play a clip of that. Yeah, play the clip. Yeah, and husbands remember anniversaries, so I guess we're even. Are you equating forgetting our anniversary with cheating on me? You are clearly determined to ruin this special day for us. I've noticed that Gabby and Carlos' scenes are seeming to have a bit of a pattern in the season so far. Every time that Gabby and Carlos are together, it's kind of like an escalating argument, Mm. which ends in in a funny way. Oh, yeah. But I, I sort of feel like that was the case in season one as well. Like, they've always turned to Gabby and Carlos' conversations for light-hearted humour. Tackling a real-world marriage issue, but <laughs> making sure that they use Carlos and Gabby's selfishness in a hilarious way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not that I mind. No, no, it's worth it. It's, it's comedy gold. Just pointing out the, the structure. Yes, it was a good point out. So Gabby comes back home in her new limited edition Aston Martin and Matthew... Betty's son, briefly compliments her on it, with Gabby telling him it was an anniversary present from Carlos that he just doesn't know it. Yep, still at her old antics. Well, <laughs> she she got that money from Carlos. She got the ability to sign her own checks. Yeah, that's true. So Carlos basically asked for it, really. It's not really entirely fair to expect Carlos to remember that it's their anniversary when he's in prison, I don't think. Why? Gabby put it perfectly. He spends all day sitting in a cell staring at a calendar. Except I doubt that in prison people spend all day sitting in a cell staring at a calendar. <laughs> well, I guess it depends on the kind of prison. Your your knowledge of prison is orange is the new black. <laughs> and films where they lie on a bed and scratch the amount of days they've been in there onto a wall. <laughs> So, Julie tells her mum, Susan, that she is... don't know why I had to specify that for you guys, but um, that she is singing with Edie in church. This gets Susan just a little bit upset, and probably mostly jealous. Just as, a little bit. Just, just a teeny bit, as it's a family thing, and Edie isn't family. Ugh. Susan tells Julie that she could have asked her as she plays piano, but the last time she played was in high school, so... Oh, Susan. Susan ends up leaving, accepting that Julie is doing the talent show with Edie. I mean, sort of. She sort of accepts it. She makes it seem like she's accepting it, but we all know she's not going to accept it. Yeah. Is singing at church a really big thing thing in America? I swear it's on all the shows. This is like a talent show that they're hosting in church, so I imagine it's very much like a Sunday school thing. Maybe, yeah. If Americans have Sunday school, they do have Sunday school, don't you? It's It's in The Simpsons. They have Sunday school. So, Matthew just wants to go hang out with some other guys and play some ball, but Betty isn't having it. She can't have Matthew having friends, as they need to keep a low profile. And he's so likeable that everyone will want to be his friend, apparently. They go to open the door to the cellar to give their prisoner food when he suddenly busts through and sort of knocks them both down. He sort of rugby tackles them. A struggle ensues with the guy trying to get out and Matthew and Betty trying to stop him before Betty whacks him on the head with the handle of that massive gun she's got and knocks him out. Susan, at this exact moment, decides to knock on the door and ask Betty if she can give her some piano lessons so she can accompany Julie in the talent show. However, Betty abruptly ends the conversation when Susan notices blood on her top. Yeah, I love the juxtaposition of how they're having like an almost normal mother and son kind of conversation and then one of them just reaches in the drawer for a gun. That always happens with them. That's like a consistent theme. They're they're having like a casual, what seems like 
just your everyday mother and son conversation. No, you can't go out tonight. I need your help around the house or something. And then suddenly she hands the guy a gun. (laughs) This show's getting violent. They're lucky they didn't, like, break his skull. Right! (laughs) Uh, Matthew, oh, but just to end this scene, sorry, Matthew calls his mum out for being rude as people will start talking, and Betty actually does agree with him. It's it's, um, very unlucky for Betty that these things keep happening when Susan shows up. It's always Susan. She shows up and these weird things keep happening, so Susan's going to start forming this narrative. Yeah, of the Apple Whites just being weird. If people haven't already started forming that narrative anyway. It's just a bit unlucky because mm. <laughs> Susan's seeing all these weird things. Uh, Stu, who's that, like, assistant dude at Lynette's workplace, shows Lynette their new video camera at work, claiming fantastic resolution for the time. So I guess video cameras were a thing. Because that was like a phone, wasn't it? Oh my god, that happens in the episode, and we were just saying, did they have video cameras like five minutes ago? Right, because that video camera is on a phone, right? It was like a vintage Nokia, so I'm not sure. They clearly weren't prevalent in, you know, modern day just society. (laughs) Isn't isn't the video footage, isn't the video quality perfect? 2020s kids are laughing. Right? (laughs) That is a 2000s tech throwback with that Nokia brick phone. Oh, it really is. I had a phone like that. Mine was all white, and it had a little antenna. That was my very first mobile phone. Oh, mine was either a Sony Ericsson or a Samsung, and it was a flip-up phone. Oh my it, god! It also had a little antenna. Yeah. But yeah, tech throwback right there. 2000s tech throwback. Right? I'm all for, hey, if they want to bring antennas back, especially in the Canterbury area, because our signal sucks. So <laughs> if, it, if it gives me a little bit of extra signal to have that little antenna on the top of my phone, I'm all for it. I feel like you just want to be a mood. Like, you want to be one of those business women in a big suit who walks out with a big brick phone and then flips up the antenna. Hello? <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, Lynette goes into Nina's office to ask for some time off tomorrow to go to Parker for his first day of school. To go with Parker, should I say, to his first day of school. And Nina is having none of it. Apparently this is again. Nina says something like, oh, not this again. Or something about your kids again. Almost implying that this isn't the first time Lynette's asked for something on behalf of her kids. Even though she specifically said when she got the job, it wouldn't be a problem. Yeah. (laughs) Nina asks Lynette how it's her problem and that there are no special treatments for those that have no children by choice, she like to point out. I find it hard to believe that Nina's childless by choice, but whatever. They don't get a little extra time off. Nina hasn't even been able to get a haircut in two months. Lynette gets the hint and leaves, but not without making a comment on Nina's hair before she goes. And then Stu tries to stop Lynette with the camera, but she isn't having it until she gets an idea. That little hair dig, that was powerful. That was a powerful moment for Lynette. She's like, oh... I, I can, I, I'm sorry about your hair. I can see why you're upset. Yeah, that was powerful. <laughs> <laughs> but wow, this scene really points out some of the really unfair, pretty internalised misogyny in the workplace with the whole fairness to people who are childless by choice. But, I mean, come on, that's just, that's prejudice. I mean, it is prejudice. It is prejudice. Yeah, yeah. because but... she, she doesn't say, no, I'm sorry, but this is really important and... It's only freaking reception or kindergarten, as it's called in America, of course. Yeah. She says, no, where's the fairness to people who don't have children by choice? Meh. But at the same time, I do sort of get her. I think she's just... To frustrated. a certain degree. And I, 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 there has to be acceptance of the fact that some people do have children. And as a primary caregiver for a child, you do have responsibilities, whether you have a job or not as well. And your workplace should be taking that into account to make sure they can be as flexible as possible for you and your childcare. But at the same time, they don't offer that level of flexibility to people that don't have children. Because in all fairness, I think this level of flexibility for people with children, it's not as Nina would would so elegantly put some sort of extra time off of vacation from work. It's not like they have children, therefore they're allowed to leave early so that they can quickly go to get their feet done at a spa. Mm. So it's That's kind true. of it's kind of a mix of um 
Nina, I see your point. Lynette seems to be taking the piss a little bit <laughs> because she's constantly asking for things by the sound of it. By the sound of it, yeah. But from Lynette's point of view, it's also like, I'm not asking for time off work so I can sit around and just get off work early. It's because I have kids and I have things to do as well. So it's a it's a hard mix, isn't it? But in Nina's defence on this side, I can't believe I'm going to say this, in Nina's defence, it's not that Parker doesn't have anyone to take him to school in this instance. There is Tom still. So Lynette doesn't need to go. She's trying to go to please her child. If Tom is there to take him to school, Lynette, you are now the one working and you also have to accept that you will miss stuff like this. Yeah, it's just her phrasing, really. I think that's the main issue. Yeah. Like, um, what she says comes across as very prejudiced towards mums because what she says is very prejudiced towards mums rather than her just saying, no, (laughs) you can't. He's already got someone taken to school and it's only reception, so... No. <laughs> yeah. That well, yeah. And also, let's face it, it's not like Lynette's asking for time off. It's still work. Lynette's still doing something. She's still she's not gonna be sat at home, like you say, like at a spa or getting her hair done. It's oh, I'm having the day off so that I can leave the house and make sure that my child is safe and happy. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, we're mostly on Nina's side though. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Her phrasing was a bit problematic, but we get it, Nina. <laughs> yeah, we totally, I absolutely get it. So, Stu tries to stop Lynette with the camera. She's not having it, and she gets an idea. She takes the video system home and tells Parker that it will let her be with him on her first day of school. But Parker's still not convinced. Because he can see right through this. Is she allowed to take that home? Probably not. Never mind. Oh well. <laughs> and also, she's, it's not only she is she allowed to take it home, it's is she allowed to take it home and give it to her five-year-old? But <laughs> Lynette is a very m- messy person when it comes to balancing her work life and her family life. I know that she's new to the work life again, but <laughs> yeah, messy. Gabby pulls up sneakily to watch John gardening outside some rando's house some more, but this time she notices something else. He has his top on. He does have his top on. The woman whose house it is starts touching John all like sensually up and down the arm, so clearly their boyfriend and girlfriend, someone tell Phyllis, before they go inside and close the door. Gabby gets out and looks through the window and sees him going at it, and in a fit of jealousy, she picks up the hedge trimmer and messes up this cougar's garden. Which, for some reason, neither of them hear. Neither of them do hear. How loudly are they going at it? I mean, <laughs> they're in the room that's right in front of the front garden. They're in the yeah, front room. they're literally in the front room. And he somehow doesn't hear this very loud hedge trimmer. And no one sees it. It's just mental. It's like, such... Suspend your disbelief completely. Yeah. <laughs> also, John clearly has a type. He clearly does. Hey, Gabby is not a cougar. Gabby is a housewife. She is definitely a housewife, and she is older than him, but, like, just. Gabby's, what, like, ten years older than him, maybe? That woman, that that woman that John's doing now is at least 20 years older. I just meant an older woman. (laughs) Not an an elderly woman, but an older woman. You could look at Gabby, and you'd still see that Gabby's older than John, but Gabby could get away with being older than John by only a few years. (laughs) Like, Gabby looks so stunning. That's only because of casting. (laughs) Because 16-year-old boys do not look like Jesse Metcalf. (laughs) That is really true. That is very true. Mike pops over to see Felicia, who is back, and give her flowers now that she is, well, back from the hospital. Um, She tells Mike she's going back to Utah for a couple of weeks to finish her recovery, as it's taking a little bit longer than anticipated. And Mike tells her that they still haven't caught Zach. He asks if Felicia knows where Zach could be, but apparently she doesn't, um, only assuming he's out looking for his father, which she believes Mike obviously made impossible up until this point. Mike tells her that he couldn't go through with killing Paul, and Felicia reminds him that that was basically a dumb move. Yeah. Ever since he hit me with a club and pushed me down the stairs, we just don't stay in touch like we shared. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I'm so happy she's back. I'm so happy she's back. 
I felt really bad for Felicia at the start of this scene because she seemed quite happy that Mike bought her flowers until she saw that he had an agenda. It's like an, a proper ulterior motive of coming over, not just giving a woman flowers. But... Yeah, because she doesn't have any friends on the street, so she was like, oh, someone bought me flowers, how lovely. <laughs> this scene kind of leads you to believe that Felicia's going to, like, do something. How do you mean? She's, well, she seemed a bit off, put off by the fact that Mike hadn't killed Paul. Well, Felicia makes a good point in this scene by saying that Zack is the one connection that Paul now has to Mary Alice. So Paul will inevitably come and find him. Mm. But Felicia just wants revenge. Felicia, want, Felicia wants justice for I, Paul murdering Martha. Maybe it's set up for a storyline. Who knows? Maybe. Let's wait and see. Bree and the kids are having a nice silent dinner as per the Vanderkamp fashion. Before she stops and ruins the evening by telling the kids that their dad was dug up by the police and they'll be doing an autopsy. And then finally that she is currently a suspect. Yeah, Bree really knows how to bring down the dinner table scene, doesn't she? She really does. She's really good at it. Uh, the kids aren't really surprised that Brie is the suspect and don't seem convinced when she tries to, t- tries to tell them that she'll be cleared pretty quickly. Danielle calls her mum out for that time that Rex had his second heart attack and she just made the bed before taking him to the hospital and Andrew tells his mum, quite bluntly, that she isn't capable of murder because she lacks the guts. I was actually quite surprised that Brie took Andrew saying you're not capable of murder as anything other than an insult. She says thank you, but I would have thought Brie would be like, I could murder someone. No, because... <laughs> <laughs> because, like, there's... It's, there's ways that you can say it, like, when you say you're not capable of murder initially, you're like, thank you, because I'm just too sweet for that. Like, yeah, it's kind of like, she, nice. she wouldn't hurt a fly. Yeah, like, it's nice that people see that, but then when he suddenly flips it and he's like, oh, that takes guts, and you don't have any mum, because you suck. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'll murder you. <laughs> I thought Andrew was going to be super nice to his mum now. Why? Because at the end of season one, Andrew told the priest, or Reverend... Reverend Sykes. Sykes, thank you. I was about to say Lovejoy, but that's the Simpsons. <laughs> Reverend Sykes, that he was going to be super nice to his mum. Oh yeah, so he can devastate he her can, later. He can like devastate her life or something. Yeah, he's not He's not doing a very good job of holding back. No, like he's not really being horrible to his mum like he used to, but he's certainly be- not being... The perfect son. Yeah. You need so... to try a bit harder at your own evil scheme, Andrew, because yeah, you're not fooling us. No, it's, it feels like you've lost your way a little bit. He's going to do something devastating. We're going to be like, well, we saw that coming. Mm. <laughs> you weren't exactly acting very well. <laughs> uh, so Betty is teaching Susan how to play piano and apologising for being so rude the other day. And Matthew starts playing his hip-hop music super loud. And Betty tells Susan that at least it drowns out the sound of the dryer. Yeah. <laughs> we got to Matthew downstairs in the cellar, installing a new lock on the door to what I'm just going to call the hostage room. Fair enough. The captive room. The captive captive room. room. So Betty's gone from Matthew tinkering around the house and always doing DIY jobs to the loud clanging being the sound of the dryer now. Yeah, she's really trying to find some sort of reasoning behind it. Inconsistent. She's an inconsistent queen. Betty, sort it out. (laughs) Betty is a messy liar. She really is. You need to stick to your stories, Betty. She seems like a proper no-nonsense teacher in this scene. Yeah. Like when Susan's like, oh, I thought it sounded professional. And then like, goes, you might want to lay off the pedal. I thought it made it sound professional. It doesn't. <laughs> and then um, as they're like fading out, she's like, arch your finger, Susan. <laughs> oh, I didn't even hear that. Yeah. Oh my God. She's proper no nonsense with her piano teaching. Good. Uh, so she should. If only she had taught Edie. <laughs> well, yeah, if only. We'll get to that. Edie and Julie are practicing for the talent show when Susan comes in asking to be included. Edie politely declines by basically saying that, you know, trios aren't really her thing. And Susan points out that the show really is for family members and Edie isn't family. However, according to Edie, in most cases, talent trumps family. And Edie has the talent. And Edie's got a point. Talent talent totally trumps family. No offence to family. Also, <laughs> Susan says, did you not hear me knocking at the door? And then Edie says, we were hoping whoever it was would just go away. I'm still hoping that will happen. Yeah. <laughs> got one thing to say to that that I haven't said in a while. Oh, we haven't. Edie says. That was our first Edie says of season two. 
Was it really? Yeah. Susan is not coming across very well in this scene, I have to say. She really isn't. I mean, first she tells Edie that she isn't family, and then she's trying to steal the talent show gig from her. Right. And all this after having just run her over with her car. Right, so literally Edie's there with like her broken leg or whatever. Edie tells Susan she didn't want any part of it until she found out that Edie was involved. Ultimately, Susan and Edie stick Julie in the middle of it and make her choose between her mum and Edie. And Julie, being the wimp that she is, eventually chooses Susan and apologises to Edie. Edie understands and demands her pitch pipe back. You don't deserve Julie, Susan. No, you really don't. She's too morally good for this world right now. <laughs> Far too morally good. Like, Julie, you should have just said, I want to go with Edie. Yeah, I'll go with Edie. We've because... been practising this whole time. And you're being unreasonable. Right? Thank you for learning the piano, mother. And maybe we can do it next time. Yeah. So, Gabby is getting her mail when John comes over and accuses her of being the one that ruined Joan's garden. (laughs) Um, Gabby tells John that Joan is old enough to be his mother, and John tells Gabby that he thinks he may be in love with Joan, and Gabby gets upset and realises how stupid she was, that she almost left her husband for someone that calls her Mrs. Solis, and that John is pretty much like every other man in the world. Oh, John. Gabby's mate, Joan? You're calling her Joan? (laughs) John, John, John. What are we going to do with John? Right, I don't know. So, John, even though he's falling in love with Joan, is apparently willing to break up with her if Gabby wants to get back with him. Right. Uh, but, but instead, they call it an end with Gabby ending things by saying that this is an appropriate ending, considering how stupid they've both been. <laughs> well, do you want to get back together? I'll dump her if you want. Right? No, that's okay. I think I love her. I think I'm in love with Joan. But I'll dump her if you want to get back together. Oh my god, that's a classic teenage thing. It's classic John. John is just the same. He's very naive. He's seeing these no-strings-attached relationships for a lot more than what they really are. Mm-hmm. It's classic John. I'm sorry to Gabby, but let's just point this out. She is so full of crap in this scene. She's talking about how she almost left Carlos for John. But really, she's just upset that she thought that she had John like in her paws forever. But- and now he's... Doing someone else. Come on. But at the beginning of the episode, she was still fantasising about John. Yeah, but not in a love way. I don't know. We don't know. I, I I feel like Gabby probably was still considering it. Potentially, but... I mean, it would be a very low thing down on her list. It would be one of those things that you sort of like, you consider, but you never consider for very long, and you don't spend an awful lot of your day hung up about it. It's just one of those things She's blowing it out of proportion, for sure. She's really upset about it, but you're the one that dumped him, love. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Move um, on to Mike. <laughs> no! Uh, <laughs> that would be drama. So we've already got Edie after Mike. We can't have every housewife after Mike. <laughs> It'd be fitting. Uh, Bree takes her kids on a field trip to the police station so she can take a lie detector test to prove that she did not kill Rex. Bree is looking so fierce, and to be honest, it's sort of like the outfit I'd wear after I killed my husband. So Bree, you're not really wor- you're like you're not really helping. Oh yeah, she's rocking the I'm a morning widow with style. Look. Yeah, right. Like the whole oh I've just buried my third husband and he died under suspicious circumstances <laughs> kind of outfit. Murdered husband, widow of realness. <laughs> yeah. So Bree doesn't care about a lawyer or anything, and the only thing she wants is for her kids to be there to witness the test. The detective does just that, and we cut to Bree hooked up to the lie detector and answering her questions. She passes with flying colours, but she gets concerned when they start to ask her questions about George. In the end, it turns out that Brie is in love with George, apparently. This shocks her completely because she just doesn't realise until now. It was also a very dirty tactic because it was irrelevant and they didn't really tell her that they were going to ask these kind of questions about George. No, sure. Aren't they supposed to tell you the questions that they're going to ask you? I think so. And in front of her children, it was very dirty. It was very dirty, but there is grounds to ask those questions. I guess so, because it is an did, investigation. Yeah, and she did date George. 
when she was still with Rex. I just think were broken up. They are coercing the situation rather than actually investigating. Oh yeah, for sure. They have basically made up their mind about her, so they're trying to coerce her into admitting something or giving them evidence. But anyway, but isn't that pretty much the American justice system? Yes. I've done some research into some lie detector tests. Ooh, okay. Well, they're clear, they're not very reliable. Oh, no, they're Let's, are. like, <laughs> take that into consideration right now, guys. Lie detector tests are so unreliable that, actually, they don't really hold up in court. I think a lot of people know this nowadays, but... Yeah. For those of you that don't know, lie detector tests are not reliable, but let's go through... So this is from an article called The Truth About Lie Detectors, a.k.a. polygraph tests, mm-hmm. on the American Psychological Association website... Which was them. (laughs) It was uploaded on August 2004. It's quite a long article, so I'll just read the first bit, which basically says, Lie detector tests have become a popular cultural icon. The picture of a polygraph pen wildly gyrating on a moving chart is a readily recognised symbol. But, as psychologist Leonard Sachs has argued, the idea that we can detect a person's veracity by monitoring psychophysiological changes is more myth than reality. Even the term lie detector, used to refer to the polygraph testing, is a misnomer. So-called lie detection involves inferring deception through analysis of psychological responses to a structured but unstandardised series of questions. To break it down later on, it basically says that the accuracy or the validity of a polygraph test has long been controversial. An underlying problem is theoretical. There's no evidence that any pattern of physiological reactions is unique to deception. Mm. So... There's not really any concrete evidence in any kind of lie detector test to say you are lying because of these traits. No, and where was all of this information readily available when all you people were sitting there watching Jeremy Carl and eating up Jeremy Carl while he ruined people's lives for a lie detector test that may or may not be true? That may or may not have led a certain person to end their life. Yeah. (laughs) Because of a very unreliable form of detecting lies. Yeah, all for entertainment, that's all it is. You know, people like Jeremy Kyle, I say people, shows, should I say, like Jeremy Kyle, Jerry Springer, shows like that, are all entertainment purposes. Like, that's all they're there for, and the introduction of lie detector tests into these shows only adds to the entertainment value. It doesn't do anything for the story or the problem that they're bringing to the show. It's there purely for entertainment purposes, with regards to, you know, the show and the audience. Yeah. So that's pretty much all it is. So lie detector test, guys, you can take one all you want, but it won't hold up in court. So if you're trying to hope that you can take a lie detector test to safely get through any legal problems you've got going, <laughs> don't expect it to work. I mean, the thing with the whole lie detector test in this particular scene is Brie is thrown off by the very mention of George in the first place. And with the amount of things that have happened between her and George already, it doesn't surprise me that she has some sort of physiological reaction with the questions in the first place. Yeah, and those reactions that Brie has would instantly skew the results yeah. of the test because that's no longer Brie sitting there relaxed, calm, just saying yes and or no. That is, you've asked her a question that she was clearly unaware that you were going to ask, taking the topic in a direction that she was clearly unaware you were going to take it, and then that has thrown her entire mentality off. Yeah, so like I said earlier, they're coercing her into... Yeah. They're trying to make her guilty, like, without even having to investigate properly. American justice system, ladies and gentlemen, they find their culprit, or they they choose their culprit, and then they find ways to make them guilty. I'm not sure if it's much better here. No, it's not. I think that's just the justice system in general, to be fair. But it's just, the American justice system is just very prevalent worldwide, isn't it? So we're we're saying the American justice system. I think Desperate Housewives can get away with it a bit more than a reality TV show, because it's for entertainment, it's for drama. But as long as people are aware that a lie detector test isn't a valid form of detecting lies <laughs> no you just you just sort of have to be a good judge of character for that i think so 
So moving on, because we spent an awful lot of time discussing lie detector tests and calling out Jeremy Kyle. Um, well, that's my trivia. <laughs> that was that was good trivia. It was really interesting. So Susan is heading to Betty's for another lesson, and as they both walk towards her front door, Carl speeds up. Residential street, Carl, just pointing out. Let's remember Juanita was killed in a hit and run not too long ago, mm. and the fact that you are racing down this street. Well, that's middle-class white folk for you. Yep. So Carl rocks up outside Betty's and starts moaning at Susan for disregarding Edie's feelings and kicking her out of the show just because she's Julie's mum. Throughout all of this... Get her, Carl. I was going to point out, throughout all of this, Betty clearly feels so uncomfortable that she starts to stand by the wing mirror of her car and she's just sort of there, just sort of looking into the car. Yeah, listening to (laughs) Um, the drama. (laughs) And just trying to hide away from the situation. Susan claims that Edie's only interested in performing with Julie to mess with her head and Carl calls her self-absorbed, which sort of isn't wrong yeah it's not an untruth susan is grasping at straws here by saying that Edie's only doing this for julie to mess with her head so, <laughs> susan apologizes to betty for the awkwardness when car goes and they both go inside funny enough betty standing at her car listening to the drama is pretty much the only thing i wrote is it really yeah i just thought it was so funny that she was just there in the background <laughs> i mean what do you do in that sort of situation like you just sort of have to stand back and let it sort of play out unless it starts to go out of control and then step in yeah but it's awkward. Other than that, it's just awkward. If I was Betty, though, I would have just gone towards the house. I would turn to Susan and I'd say, Susan, I'll meet you inside. Just come in when you're ready. Yeah. And then I would have gone in. I wouldn't have just stood by the car. Lynette is in her office talking to Parker in the video chat when Nina comes in and interrupts them, demanding Lynette get her butt into the staff meeting now. Now, 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 now. This is the best scene. It is an interesting scene. Lynette <laughs> is so messy. Lynette tells Parker that she will be right back and she basically goes into the meeting room and keeps trying to find ways of getting out of the room and going back into her office. Either she forgot her booklet or she needs the loo or things like that. She suddenly gets an idea to stop the meeting indefinitely and Lynette goes a little bit crazy trying to get Nina's hot coffee to knock off of the table. Nina sort of puts it on the edge of the table but so close to the edge that it could almost fall off if you just did the right thing. <laughs> um, but instead of being subtle about it, Lynette just goes ham. She really does. <laughs> Which no one ever questions afterwards. No yeah. one ever, why was Lynette behaving that way? Who's this new woman? What's her problem? Well, like... she, she's so erratic today. <laughs> but she eventually succeeds and the hot coffee falls into Nina's lap. Did you say how she succeeds? Well, she sort of slaps the table several times to the point where the cup jumps towards the edge closer and closer and then she sort of lifts the table with her knee. It's so ridiculous. It's the so table stupid. is so long. And so heavy. Probably like, heavy. It would probably be heavy. It could be one of those really like plasticky tables that like you get at a family barbecue. Um, but even mm. then, is it really possible to shake one end of a table from the complete opposite end like that? Yeah, because she is sat towards the opposite end of the table, I'd like to point out. Like it's not like she's sat next to Nina. And also, when you're slapping the table and it's making Nina's cut mug move even closer to the edge, the amount that it moves each time, you would notice and surely you'd like pick up your cup. If I was in a meeting at work and someone went crazy and kept slapping the table, the first thing I'd do is pick pick up my drink yeah. and I'm like what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> I mean she does do that she doesn't pick up her drink but she does she is what does she say are you having a seizure yeah are you having a seizure or a stroke or something oh, N- like Nina hates Lynette Nina literally hates her well I'm sorry but if this is the way that Lynette behaves in all the meetings I don't blame her I'm surprised she hasn't fired Lynette yet because already yeah she's just Lynette is acting like an absolute crazy person mm. it's but it's hilarious so I Don't fly her, because I want to see more. Yes. So, the hot coffee falls into Nina's lap, and Nina ends up calling for Stu, who, like, must be some sort of apprentice or something, whatever they call apprentices in America. I think he's an intern. Uh, That's the word. Thank you. That was the word I was thinking of, and I couldn't think of it the other day. Just because I was an intern, and... (laughs) But you get the (laughs) shitty jobs like that as the intern. 
Yeah, I had a great time as an intern. I was at a radio station, but sometimes you just have to do some really weird shit. Yeah. And so Stu ended up having to get like bags of ice. And so Lynette goes back to her office to finish up with Parker before looking at Nina with ice on her thighs and feeling all proud of herself for this. Lynette, you've caused this. I thought she was feeling guilty because she made a really hot beverage spill into Nina's crotch. No, the way that she was looking at the fact that <laughs> Nina was clearly in so much pain with those that, those like bags of ice on her, like the inside of her thighs. Oh, she was so pleased with herself that she actually found a way to indefinitely end that meeting. Yeah. So, Brie goes to the pharmacy to speak with George and ask for his help in proving that they did not conspire to kill Rex. She fills him in on everything and tells George that the polygraph helped her to realise that she actually had feelings for him and possibly even loved him. And because of that, the police now believe that they worked together to poison Rex. As if it wasn't bad enough that they've coerced her into trying to seem guilty, they've now coerced her into thinking that she loves George. She loves George, but then it, there must be feelings for George there, like you said earlier. Yeah. she did date him, so... I, I love George, I'm so glad that he's back. I think it probably wasn't on purpose, it might just be because the actor has such an in, such interesting facial features, but mm. he has this wide smile and it just looks crazy. He looks like the Joker when he smiles. Yeah, he does, he looks like Jimbo Yeah, Dra- Canada's Drag Race. So, George, finally, I would like to point out, George is the one person in this episode, really, that speaks any sense and actually tells Brie that polygraphs aren't always reliable, but Brie seems convinced that maybe it was right in this instance, but she can't know for sure until this whole situation is behind them. And once it is, she can start to think more about her feelings. Oh, uh-oh. And George is obviously loving this. Yep. He's getting everything he wanted. So, now we finally get to the scene that everyone's been waiting for at the church for the talent show. So, yeah, I might have spoke too soon when I said that the Lynette... Coffee gate scene was the best scene. This might actually be the best scene. This is hilarious. This is such a good scene. So Julie and Susan get up to perform, and when suddenly Susan has this realization that even though she stopped Edie from performing with her daughter, Edie is still there in the audience at church to cheer her on. She tells Edie this, apologizes for pushing her out, and tells Edie that it should be her up there and not Susan. Messy. Real messy, but it is Susan, so what do we expect? Why would you pause a whole performance just to run up someone in the audience and be like, it really should have been you, I'm so sorry. Well, technically she didn't pause it, because they hadn't started. Okay. <laughs> so technically they didn't pause it, but I get what you, I get what you mean. Okay. Um, Edie thinks it's funny that Susan realises this after she leaves the house without her guitar, but that she also does play piano. This then for means that the announcer changes the lineup from Julie and Susan to Julie and her Aunt Edie playing the piano now. And it's safe to say that Edie does not know how to play the piano, despite the fact that, you know, she's there playing it and denying that she doesn't know. Well, she's a bit rusty, at least. This thing's got at least 90 flats. Yeah. Susan absolutely loves this moment, despite the fact that it's clearly embarrassing for her daughter. Yeah. She is eating this moment up. It's already embarrassing enough that she's singing at church, but... Now she's got this whole other level of embarrassment of not only is she singing at church and singing at a talent show, but she's doing it badly. Yeah, she's sitting next to her ex-husband like, record it, Carl. Record your current girlfriend. Look how terrible she's doing. Record it. But as long as Edie looks terrible and is embarrassed by this, that's fine. But props to Edie because she still attends and she is on Julia. She goes on stage. And she does. It's very lovely. It is it's really sweet. Cute. It is really sweet. But Carl is so done with this. Of course he is. The like, minute that Susan leaves that stage and goes down to them, he's just like, oh my god, why is this happening? <laughs> even when Susan's like apologising to Edie and Carl's just the one that sits there and goes, thank you, Susan. Yeah. And doesn't even look at her. He just looks ahead. Rude. In my eyes, that's Hilarious. rude. Hilarious. So. If, if we had a most cringy scene award, it would go to this. This is proper cringe humour. This is a cringy scene, especially watching Julie try to sing This Little Light of Mine. But this is um, the office sort of cringe humour vibes. Yeah, it's yeah, on I get that. It's on that level. <laughs> 
Uh, so, Gabby rocks up to the jail again, and Carlos is confused as to why she wanted to see him so suddenly. And Gabby takes this moment to truly apologise to Carlos. And I will emphasise that, truly apologise. This is probably the most honest apology you will ever hear from Gabby. Yeah. Carlos claims that it is the best anniversary present she has ever given him, and she tells Carlos that the one that he got her was really nice too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is a really sincere moment. This is a really sweet scene. I think that having that moment with John and that realisation that John actually didn't love Gabby for who she was, even though he might have done, sort of made Gabby realise how selfish she was being in that moment and made her sort of take responsibility for the actions that she obviously chose to make and apologise to Carlos. Yeah, big props to Eve and Ricardo, because the acting was really good here as well. You get the, oh, you got yeah. the sincerity across. But, Carlos, we're still waiting for that apology from you, mate. Oh yeah, we, we are waiting, please, come on. They could have ended the scene with a comical fight once she mentioned the gift, but they kept the tone and the feel of the scene very sincere and sweet. So they I, did it right, they yeah, did it right. I enjoyed that. Because otherwise it'd just get really boring if every scene ended with Carlos and Gabby as a comical fight. Like, it's funny from time to time, but we also need to see character progression. And in this sort of scene, what we have seen from Gabby is character growth. Yeah. Mary Alice discusses how people enjoy playing make-believe now and again, and we see Lynette struggling to balance work, life, and family life. We see Gabby jogging past John and ignoring him completely, and we see Betty and Matthew continue to feed and threaten their prisoner, and we end with George taking the lie detector test and confirming to everyone that he did not poison Rex. Psychopath. Dot, dot, dot. With Mary Alice ending the episode by saying that if you want everybody to believe a lie, first you have to believe it yourself. Yeah, he's not just a sociopath, he is a psycho. Yeah. Complete psycho. Like, he's literally convinced himself that he has not killed Rex. Which I guess is pretty easy, because technically he didn't, the heart attack killed Rex. Yeah, but... You that, just caused the heart attack, but... but that kind of, <laughs> using that kind of logic to make yourself believe it wasn't me is so psychotic. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Amazing. <laughs> so I can't wait to see what else we get from George this season. Yeah, he's so good. Mm-hmm. So let's move on to our next segment, which is when Joel is going to talk to us about the tops and the bottoms of the fashion in this episode. What would you like to start with, Joel? So the best outfit I am going to give to Brie at the police station, because that's the kind of outfit I would wear after my husband's just died, so I can't really hate on it. Oh, the widow elegance The sort of like, yeah, the sort of elegant widow when she turns up and she's like, oh, I just want my children to be there to witness me taking this lie detector test so that they (laughs) they know that I haven't murdered their father either. But she's there with like her sort of high neck top (laughs) and like the slimming sleek black. So she looks great. Okay. I'll, I'll give her that award. Oh yeah, fair enough. Um, and what would be your pick for the worst outfit of this season? Oh, the worst outfit is an outfit that I think we see for like a second, but I'm going ham with it. And it's those hideous ass flapper dresses that were at the church. Oh, I don't remember. Who wore those? Um, some random girls that were just oh. performing just before Julie and Susan. Oh yeah, they look like... And they a... had like the dancers and they were like the 1920s style flapper dresses, but uh, they were hideous. Yeah, the multicoloured fringe. Yeah. And ugh. And hey, I love a fringe, don't get me wrong. I love a good jacket with some fringe on it, but that was just awful. So you guys get the worst outfit from me. Yeah, it was a bit too rainbow for 2000s church. Yeah. <laughs> but do you know what those dresses reminded me of? Gatsby. The NHS. Oh, oh my god. And they always will from now on. <laughs> Alright, poor Hollywood. <laughs> so what do we say to those NHS dresses? Oh, Jesus. Gross. I would like to point out we do not say that to the NHS. Just those dresses. Just those dresses. Because we we love the NHS. We do. We're pro-NHS in this household. So, moving on, what are your rewards this episode? This episode does have a best and worst parent. Okay. So, first of all, we're going to do the... Best parent of the episode. 
the best parent of the episode goes to Lynette <gasps> for seeing Parker off on his first day of reception. And getting even, him a really cool backpack. <laughs> even if she had to burn her boss's crotch to do it. I don't necessarily agree that Lynette needed to do that and needed to go with Parker, but props to Lynette for the commitment of making sure that you do it to keep your child happy. Yeah. Once again, it was slim pickings, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, hey, hey, yeah. it was. It, she did what she had to do to make sure her child was happy. That's a good parent. And my award for... Worst parent of the episode. This award was originally going to go to someone else, but it would have been a major spoiler. So I changed it to Susan for embarrassing poor Julie in front of the whole church. Yep. Which everyone saw coming from a mile away. Everyone saw it. Everyone, yeah, it's even been videoed. So it's there forever now until someone gets rid of the video, which I would hope that Carl does as yeah. soon as he gets home and Susan's not around, because why would any of you want to watch that back? <sighs> not classy, Susan. We're going to have to talk about who it was originally then, because I want to know eventually. what this spoiler was. So that is the end of season two, episode three, and join us next week for season two, episode four, My Heart Belongs to Daddy. Best episode title ever. Yeah. <laughs> who doesn't love a daddy? I bet that's talking about Carl. Or Mike. Or Mike, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So join us next week and we will discuss that. Yeah, we'll be back in your ears. We but will. until then, where can people find us on our socials where we do fun little posts about different characters, little background trivia, little snippets of what's coming? Where can they find us? You don't. No, I'm kidding. Oh. You can find us on Instagram at Boyfriends Review and you can find us on Twitter at BFS Review. Yeah. You can also email us. Our email address is boyfriendsreview at outlook.com and all of our artwork is done by our friend Louis. You can find him on Instagram at DocRedMonkDesign where you'll find a link to his Etsy page where he does commissions. Yep. So like Joel said, join us next week. We'll be back in your ear holes and we'll be talking about episode four, My Heart Belongs to Daddy. Where hopefully I'll be feeling a lot better. I hope so too. So see you later, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.